Anyway, the first, I just want to say two things before we look at that passage very briefly, and I know it's warm in here as well. So the first thing I want to say is thank you. Um, honestly, thank you so much to all of you as a church family for the ways that you have loved us and cared for us, uh, provided for us uh, financially. Thank you for your hunger for Bible ministry, uh, your willingness to let me into some of the happiest and hardest moments of your life. There are many of you in this room, and I've uh, sat by bedsides in hospital to read the Bible with you, to pray with you. Uh, there are people in this room who I've been on the phone to at some of the toughest times of their life and had the privilege of praying with you. Honestly, I can say you've, you've been very generous to us this evening, but I want to say really clearly it has been an honor to be your pastor. It has been a privilege, and I'm really grateful to you. I want to thank the elders here, past and present, for your faithfulness to the gospel, for your love and your commitment to the people and the work here. Um, I'm grateful to God for you. It has been a privilege to serve with you uh, for the sake of the gospel here. I know it's been a little bit like it's been all my work here, but it has not. There have been other people involved uh, doing uh, great work. I, I can't thank everybody individually. It would be dangerous even to try, but I do this evening want to pay a particular thanks to the staff team. Uh, I, uh, I'm going to say just how grateful I am, especially for the ways that you guys have walked with me through the last 12 months, which have been particularly difficult. It's been a, a joy to be, as what Sam would call, boss, your boss, and, uh, and to work with you. Marco, I think you and I have probably drunk more coffee together over the last, I don't know, five or six years than I have with anybody else in this room. We've had uh, lots of deep theological conversations. You have some super helpful insights in sermon read-throughs. You've given me some... Uh, pastoral tip-offs, uh, and I've really, really appreciated your friendship. Thank you so much as well for leading tonight. That's been uh, great. I realize, you know, you received the poison chalice tonight, so thank you for, uh, for leading. Rachel, I've, I've written down here that it's been mostly hilarious with having you on the team, but Rachel, uh, that gives the wrong impression. There is a seriousness to Rachel, um, which I have really, really appreciated, and so impressed with the way that you've moved towards people. Uh, and got on with the work of ministry, especially joining the church during COVID. You have a, an infectious hunger for God's word. Don't change that uh, wherever uh, the Lord has you go. Sam, I'm not sure what I can say to you. You uh, have shaved your head to uh, sort of emulate me, and I <laughs> am incredibly grateful for that. I want you to know I'm getting none of the tattoos or piercings that you have today. Honestly, Sam, you, uh, the Lord has used you to keep me sane over the last year especially. Monday staff meetings have basically been uh, the two of us, and mostly I've been at my wit's end. And uh, I, I don't know that you really appreciate what a brilliant church administrator Sam is uh, and the work that she does behind the scenes. Uh, the way you go about that work is a testimony to God's goodness and his work in you and through you. Um, I've learned a lot from listening to you. We do sermon read-throughs on a Friday. We did sermon read-throughs on a Friday. And Sam would go, wow, this is a bit of a silly comment, but... And then we'd come out with something really useful. And I learned a lot from listening to you. Rich, I, uh, I leave these guys in your, in your capable hands. Uh, and I'm sure you'll find them a joy to work with. Now, if you can cope with a bit of a cheesy comment, I do especially want to thank you, Vanessa, 
tonight. I know you're going to be mad with me later for this. <laughs> and the girls. Back in, uh, and you girls as well. Back in 2008, we made a, you know, Lucy wasn't even there then, but uh, neither was Elise, I don't think, at the time. But as a, as a family, we made an agreement that we would work hard and throw ourselves into church planting, holding nothing back. And we did that, and God has honoured that, and he has done more than we ever thought, hasn't he? We didn't feel weak or strong. We didn't really know what we were doing. But the Lord has been very, very gracious. And, you know, kind words have been said this evening, but uh, it's cost Vanessa and the girls uh, more dearly than perhaps any of you uh, will realise. Vanessa, your uh, unwavering support and honest criticism and feedback, your love and your kindness is really, really appreciated. And Grace and Anna and Elise and Lucy, I know being a pastor's kid, is a really bum deal, right? But you're great. I love you. Let's press on to the next chapter, trusting the Lord and see what he does. Secondly, though, I want to say to all of you that I'm sorry. Uh, I don't know whether this will surprise you to learn, but my predominant sense in ministry has been and continues to be a profound sense of my own weakness and unworthiness. I think you perhaps start in Christian ministry a little bit like you start in parenting, by thinking you know what you're doing. And over the course of the years, you realize that, no, you really don't have a clue about what you're doing at all. And I, I think the worst of it is that as a pastor, that there's always in the church a really strong correlation between your own weaknesses and the weaknesses that you see in the church family as well. Uh, and some people point it out as if you'd not realized, but honestly, it's the thing that I am so acutely aware of. I'm uh, so, so aware of the things that I have not done and not done well, and I want you to hear that I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry for the things that I've just not done well or done wrong. I'm sorry for perhaps maybe when in my energetic enthusiasm I've perhaps done too much, maybe been too involved and left you feeling squeezed out, or where my desire to do things well and keep pressing forward has come across as an in tolerance of weakness or mistakes. I'm sorry for that. Sorry that I've not spent the time with each of you that I could have or should have. Maybe times when I've not listened as carefully to each of you as I should have done. I'm sorry that as a church family you've had to live with the, the particular kind of mess that someone like me makes. I can honestly say before the Lord I have tried my best, but please do forgive me where I have come up short. So thank you been an honor and I am sorry for the things that I've not done well. Now listen with those things in mind and um, with the fact that it's really hot and you're all really had enough and the cakes are about to come out let's just have a brief look at these verses that Marco read. A number of years ago I had a, a sort of I want to say a light bulb moment when reading John 3 but that's maybe setting this up for a failure. It doesn't happen all the time but occasionally when you read your Bible in a quiet time you go I've never seen that like that before. And I had one of those occasions in John 3 several years ago when I, I wrote a few notes in my study Bible, just in the margin, to, to sort of indicate what I'd learned. And I, I've kept coming back to that over the years. And I thought, well, you know, this is my last chance, so I'm going to say some of those things tonight. Now, before I start, and I, I know especially for the Bible exposition police out there, I know who you are, I know what you're thinking, I know that I am not John the Baptist. I know that I'm not Jesus, and I know that the big point in this passage is really that transition from old covenant to new covenant, right? This is the, the sort of promise and fulfillment 
uh, of the scriptures. It's the pattern there, isn't it? That's clearly what's going on. But I know that's going to rile you, but I'm not going to talk about that at all, okay? I, I think knowing that, it's worth having a really careful listen to what John the Baptist says about Christian life. And let me just give you four very quick things, honestly, quickly. I'll waffle about them for a moment, then we can all eat cake and go home. And you never have to listen to me again. First, very brief observation. Contentment in life is a function of trusting the Lord. Did you notice that? This whole encounter sparks in verse 26 with some of John the Baptist's disciples coming up to him and saying, aren't you slightly miffed that Jesus is more popular than you? Aren't you, aren't you annoyed by his success? It's a brutal question. We're too British, you wouldn't even ask it, would we? We wince at it. Because we'd be too ashamed to say that we were even thinking in those kind of categories. It'd be like saying, having watched those great videos, that I didn't know Marco was doing any of this. But, you know, those things like, you know, uh, City Church Manchester is like, I don't know, what, three or four times as big as we are? Now, hey, doesn't it miff you that the church you planted grew to three or four times the size that you did as a church? Aren't you kind of upset by that? Don't you wish that you were more successful as a church? You know, we wouldn't even talk in those categories. We're too polite, but we think in them, don't we? And, and actually, that's what... Uh, John the Baptist's disciples come to him and ask, but amazingly, John the Baptist doesn't share any of those feelings at all. He's totally unruffled by the success of Jesus exceeding his own, or by the hopes that his followers have that they would be uh, a bigger number than Jesus. Now, we'll look at the detail of it in a moment, but just from that sort of helicopter view of the passage, you can see that unlike his disciples, and frankly, unlike me or unlike us, John is content, isn't he? He has a very deep level of contentment. Not because John's had more success than he imagined, right? It's not because he goes, oh, well, it, I might not have done as well as Jesus, but I did way better than I thought. Nor is it because he's looking forward to retirement, which kind of doesn't work out for John the Baptist, really, does it? Rather, it seems that he is content because deep in his heart, he has a confidence that God is in charge of what has happened. He is where he is because God has decided he's going to be there. And so his contentment comes not from his achievement, but from his trust. Contentment is not a point that he arrived at, having done so much, but it was an attitude in his heart. Now, I know you're thinking, goodness, Steve, is this one of your this epiphany in your Bible? That's like the most obvious thing for anyone ever to say. But just think about that for a moment. Contentment is trust or faith displayed emotionally. I think this is probably a catchphrase. You've all been so kind to me tonight not to say any of these things, but I think what contentment is what trust looks like, yeah? Is that a catchphrase? I think it probably is. What does that look like? Contentment is what trust looks like. Because trust knows that we are where we are, church is like it is, because God wants it to be like that. Now that means for us tonight, for us as a family leaving, for Egbeth remaining, it doesn't really matter what we think about that, whether we think that's a step towards success or a step backwards, a step towards growth or decline, it doesn't really matter because actually the truth is God rules. Ultimately, we are where we are because that's exactly where God planned for us to be. And I think profoundly that means this, right? At an application level, it means chill out a bit, right? Relax. Because mission and ministry belongs to the Lord and contentment comes from trusting him. It doesn't come from having a certain person in a certain post or being a particular size or arriving at a certain point as a church. I mean... I hate to break this to you now, because again, you've been very kind. I didn't actually say this in my interview at West Kilburn Baptist Church either, but in an important sense, I've done nothing. I've done nothing. God has done it and will continue to do it. 
And contentment comes from trusting him. Second observation, which is just linked to that, you can only do what God gives you to do. I think verse 27 was a mystery to me when John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. I always wonder, what on earth is he talking about? How does that answer this question about the ministry of Jesus in verse 26? What is coming from heaven and what is, uh, what is it, who is it coming to? I think the point is very simple. People receive work. Specifically here, they receive ministry. In other words, uh, what we do is given to us just as the gifts to do it are given to us and the circumstances in which we do it. John the Baptist has been given a particular set of gifts, yes, and a particular place, but also a specific work to do from heaven. And his point is uh, not so that he needed to spend his life sort of working out what is it that God has given me to do. It's not a guidance point, is it, where you have to sort of desperately try and work out what is God's will for me. It's not that at all, is it? Rather, the point seems to be the opposite of that. You can only do what God has given you to do. You can only do what God has given you to do. You can't do anything unless you've been given it to do, unless you've received it. It's like a bullet to the head, isn't it, for our love of self-made men and women, a culture that loves heroes, even Christian heroes. Because the truth is, what we've been able to do, we've only been able to do because we've received it from the Lord. The opportunities are all of his orchestrating. The gifts we have, we have on loan. The work that he's given to us has come from heaven. The 15 or so, or maybe, maybe were there 17 of us, very ordinary people who were given a work to do of starting a church here. And God has done remarkably more than we ever imagined, but we only did it because he gave it to us to do. God has given us work. You know, we've seen God work through us, haven't we, in saving souls. There are people in this room who weren't Christians when we started. Praise God. We've trained people for ministry. It's great to see those videos. Again, thanks uh, so much, Marco, for putting that together. I think we've had 18 people through the staff team in the years that I've been here, and seven of them are now in full-time pastoral positions, which I think is one every two years, isn't it, pretty much? God gave us that work to do. What a privilege to be a part of it. We've carried people through suffering. We've watched him take saints home to glory. And it's not stuff that we've achieved. It's stuff that we've been given to do, and we've been the recipients of his blessing. Praise his name. You know, if you're sat here and you're part of Edgworth Community Church, I want to say to you, you know, most Christians in most of the world don't ever at any point in their life get to be a part of something like this. And it's a real privilege Many pastors, many friends of mine never get to serve on an eldership where there's a fierce commitment to the truth of Scripture. But we have that here. You have that here. It's not because we deserve it or because we've made it happen. It's in God's kindness he's given it to us. You know, you might wish that he'd given you more. You might wish that he'd given you better. But the truth is none of us can do anything unless we've received it from heaven. Thirdly, joy in life is in seeing Jesus' glory. Verse 29, isn't it, that Jesus, sorry, John the Baptist says that his joy comes from being near the bridegroom, Jesus, and from hearing his voice and getting to be a friend who hangs out with him. It's a brilliant little picture, isn't it, of a, of a, wedding, banquet, a wedding banquet, and John is imagining being there, knowing that he's not the main man, but he's a guest and a friend of the main man. And the joy of the friend is not by pretending to be the bridegroom, is it? If you're going to a wedding... The way to ruin a wedding as you go as a guest is to pretend that you're the bride or the bridegroom. It will ruin it for them, and it will ruin your enjoyment of it as well. And John says, actually, no, joy in a wedding comes 
actually from being a friend of the main person, being a friend of the bride or the groom and getting to hang out with them. Your joy comes from seeing who they are. And so joy doesn't actually come from a significant ministry. It doesn't come from a growing popularity. It doesn't come from a prominent position. It doesn't come from pretending you're the main attraction. It comes from standing near and listening. John the Baptist, in a kind of biblical, theological sense, sees, doesn't he, the fulfillment of the old covenant in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that point scans through for us, doesn't it, that real joy doesn't come from the role that we have or the stuff that we have or the place that we are, but it comes from knowing our place in the picture that we are at a wedding feast and Jesus is the main event and we belong to him. And we belong to him. It's great consolation, isn't it? Because the bridegroom goes nowhere. And here or in West Kilburn, we all get to share that joy, the joy of being near the Lord Jesus. You know, there are miserable people at weddings, aren't there? Have you met miserable people at weddings? Miserable people at weddings, other than the photographer, is that right, Dan? (laughs) Miserable people at weddings are people who are really too self-interested. If you go to a wedding and you're interested in the bride and groom, you'll have a great time. It's why there are so many miserable Christians as well, because they forgot that they're friends of the groom at the party of the universe, a party that hasn't even got fully going yet, but the dance floor is filling up. And we get to be there. The final observation then, losing ourselves to glorify Christ is life itself. Of course, and maybe you knew this when this was read, verse 30 is the most famous part of the section, isn't it? He must increase, but I must decrease. Again, this rich theology here about the flow of scriptures. But I think there's real help for us in the word must. You notice that's repeated twice. In other words, this isn't really a choice that John the Baptist is making. I think that's how you sort of read it at first, isn't it? John the Baptist, how, how meek he is, how humble he is. And that's certainly true. But the word must here means that John the Baptist isn't making Jesus look greater because he's particularly humble, but because that's what he must do, because that's what life itself is about. Yeah? It's the must of life and ministry. Glory must go where glory belongs. And sending glory to where it belongs doesn't make John the Baptist unhappy, Rather, the point, the better that Jesus looks, the happier John is. It's the must of life that glory goes to Jesus, not to us. I do think there's something particularly difficult for a church going through its first pastoral transition. Uh, Church plants have to go through this, don't they? Appointing the first replacement pastor is, is difficult, and I will be praying for you as a church. But you know, you will always have to have done this at some point. This is not the last farewell that you will say, is it? Because people must come and go, but Jesus will remain. We must fade into the background, and Jesus must keep coming to the foreground. Now, this is my prayer for you guys as I leave. Not just that you find someone to take over, but that you find that Jesus was in charge all along that my name will slip into the anonymous list of former pastors. There's a great list of those at West Kilwin Baptist Church floating around the manse, this list of people who've done the job before. And praying that future generations will come who know nothing about me, but lots about Jesus. You know, there are children in the room here who I'm praying one day will appoint someone new. 
and they don't know anything about me, but they know the Lord Jesus, that he must increase and we all must decrease. Let me pray for you and then we'll sing again. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the delight that it has been to be a church family together. We thank you for the things that you have done, the work that you gave us to do together, and the great glory that you have brought to yourself through it. We thank you that this is all from you and not from us, and that actually our contentment and our joy comes from knowing Christ and not from the things that we've achieved. We know, Lord, that you have been gracious to us and kind to us, way beyond anything that we could have hoped or imagined. And we pray, please, in years to come, and even today, that the Lord Jesus will increase and we will decrease. We pray that with increasing clarity, people would see that church is all about him and not about me. And pray for people in this room who have responsibility to appoint a new pastor now, and in the future as well someday, give them wisdom to appoint somebody who will keep pointing to the Lord Jesus in his glory and his greatness. In his name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing what is our closing song, which is, I think, probably my favorite song. So let's stand and sing, What Gift of Grace is Jesus, My Redeemer? Let's stand and sing together.